Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, the twelfth verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, there is a punctuation mark missing. It's a straight line going out from the word sin. It's called an M dash, and it's called an M dash because it's the width of an M. There's an N dash, and that's a hyphen, and that's the width. Well, what is an N dash, then, if it's not a hyphen? Seriously. What's the difference in width between an N dash and a hyphen? The hyphen is shorter. That's interesting. Okay. Well, this is an M dash, and do you all know what an M dash is supposed to signify? So you can have various ways of separating words, and one would be a semicolon, one would be a colon, one would be, you can't really call a period a separation of words. I mean, I guess it is, but it's, a period is a full stop. An M dash and a comma are probably the two to compare. A comma is just sort of a, a little bit of a burp, you know, as you're eating, but an M dash is like stop. Look at what's coming. So an M dash is supposed to get you to, to wake up to what is coming and to not feel like you're just continuing the same thought. Now, it's similar to the word therefore. Parenthetical statement. Now listen, therefore, and then M dash. All right, now, what comes after the M dash is indicated by the statement just as, Okay. So the statement just as lets you know what? Well, it lets you know that you're, you're about to see a parallel between what it's talking about here and something else. And so just as, so, you expect that to come. Well, that's not in this text. And what's interesting is the M dash is a parenthetical statement. So if you saw the M dash there, you'd know that the Apostle Paul is going to go off into one of his tangents. You know how he's, he's talking, you've got the flow of the talking, and then all of a sudden he'll stop and say, by the way, I went to New York last week, and do you know what I saw in New York? You know, the Apostle Paul does this while he writes. He's like, and while I'm thinking of it, there's this. So, this week, this verse. Next week, the parenthetical statement. And then the parallel will be filled out. What is the parallel? Well, the parallel is the parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam. And the first Adam, his name is... Adam. (laughs) The second Adam, his name is what? Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul, the theme of the whole book of Romans, is making it very clear to us that there is no way to be acceptable in the sight of God except through the second Adam, Jesus Christ. No way. But now what he's going to try to do is establish why 
we should be trembling about being accepted by God the Father through Jesus Christ. Why we should never be presumptuous that God would ever receive us. Why we should be trembling, not just for ourselves, but for little Jeffrey. As he sits there in his mother's arm. Why we should tremble for our unborn children who have never taken a breath independently in their life. And this verse opens that up to us. It says, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so this is a categorical statement to the human race. This is a categorical statement to the race that is called what? Man. That in that one man, see the words, we all were corrupted, and we all will die. You see it. It's very clear. Through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. This is the original sin, the first one. And it's done by whom? Well, look at the text. It's done by what? One man. What's the name of the one man? Adam. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about names. The name of the first man is Adam. And in the first chapter of the Bible, we read this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man, and the Hebrew word there is Adam. Let us make man, let us make Adam in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man, the Hebrew word is Adam, In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right here you see that God refers to male and female together as what? As what? Adam. Okay? Them. Adam. Then, in the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, Then the Lord God formed man, what's, what's the Hebrew? Come on, say it, Adam. Then the Lord God formed Adam of dust from the ground. And what is the word ground in Hebrew? Anybody know? The word ground is Adama or Adama. And so the Lord God named the man the name of the ground that he was made from. And so Adam is called Adam because he's made from Adama, ground. Then the Lord God, and I'm just going to read it with the Hebrew transliterated, okay? This is what the Hebrew sounds like. Then the Lord God formed Adam of dust from the ground, or no, Adam from dust of the Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. There he planted Adam, whom he had formed. 
And so the name of the ground is Adama. The name of the man is Adam. A little later in verse 20, we read this. The the man, and again the word is Adam, Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God created a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman. Now, what would be the, the word for woman? Well, the word for man, as opposed to woman, is the word ish. And so the name of the woman is Isha. Okay? And Isha indicates derivation. Ish? Isha. Of Ish. All right? Man is Ish. Woman is Isha. The Lord God fashioned into Isha the rib which he had taken from the... Adam, and brought her to Adam, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, or Isha, because she was taken out of man, and you're all going to say it's Adam there, no, it's Ish. Now, who is it that names Adam? God names Adam. God calls Adam, Adam. God calls Adam, Adam, because God made Adam from the ground, and the ground is called Adama, or Adama. Who named Eve? Who named the animals? Adam named the animals. Adam named Eve. Adam named Eve for himself. Adam did to his wife exactly what they just did with their baby, which is name them after the father, right? We have the privilege of naming our children. They named him Jeffrey. Now, if I were David, I'd be angry. David? Where's David? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of, well, I mean, it wouldn't be obnoxious normally, but knowing Jeff? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of sort of kind of, you know, yeah. I mean, names, a lot of, you know, kind of fighting go on over names, you know. Names are significant. I want to tell you all, names are significant. God names Adam. I, I, so many of you are having children. Choose your names carefully because your children will become the name that you give them. And you see this all through Scripture. Sometimes people's names are changed as an indication of who they now are. You think about Peter. You're the rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Petrus. So God names the first man, and the man names the woman. And it matters. It matters. Every single word of Scripture matters. But here we're not just dealing with a preposition or a conjunction. We're dealing with names. God names the man, and God names what? God names the race. And God names the race what? With the name of the man. He doesn't name the race Eve. He doesn't name the race Isha. He doesn't name the race Ishishishah. He doesn't name the race Adam-Eve. 
He names the race Adam. He names the man, first man Adam. He names the race Adam. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 5, verse 2, in case we didn't get the truth from what I read earlier, where it says they are called Adam, in Genesis 5, verse 2, the Bible says he created the male and female, and he blessed them and named them Adam in the day when they were created. Now listen, every single time you read the Bible you need to see where you disagree with it. It does not help you to read the Bible unless you're self-aware and you realize that you don't like what you're reading. And this is always true with the Bible. I don't know how we've gotten to the point where we think that a bad sermon is a sermon that we disagree with. (laughs) No, a sermon's supposed to be helpful. Years ago, Mark who's a dear brother. He lives in New York now. As a matter of fact, Mary Lee and I were a couple blocks from his house, and we didn't even bother saying hi. Mary Lee and I needed some R&R together. But Mark was in this church, and he started out as a sax player, but Mark got carpal tunnel. And so Mark had to redirect himself. But he knew music inside and out. And what we noticed was that this church always had a huge number of music students. It's always been true that this church has had more music students, although now it may actually be uh, the Kelly School that, that has more than music students. I don't know. But it's always had a large number of music students. We always wondered, why is it that we have so many music students? And one day Mark came up to me and Mark said, you know, Tim, I think I figured it out. He said, you know, when you play an instrument, every single week you go to a teacher and the teacher rips you apart and tells you what you're doing wrong. And so music students are acclimated to going to church and expecting to be told what they're doing wrong. And if a music student doesn't have a teacher who tells them what he's doing wrong, they feel like they're not getting their money's worth. I thought, wow, that's interesting. How have we gotten to the point where we think when we open the Bible, we should agree with it, and when we go to church and hear a sermon, we should agree with it? How can God's thoughts be higher than our thoughts if they're our thoughts? How can you have a sermon that is giving to us our thoughts back again? This is stupid. What other teacher would you ever want to just recite back to you what you already think? And yet that's what we expect the Bible and preachers to be. You know, they exist to confirm our prejudices. Well, this morning I hope that I can destroy, through the Word of God, your prejudices. Okay? And so I want to talk a little bit about this this statement. Just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. First of all, I want to talk to you and tell you that this is the foundational statement in the New Testament of the doctrine of original sin. Original sin is the sin committed by Adam. Original sin is not the sin committed by Eve. And you say, well, wait, Eve sinned first. I say, yeah, I know, but that's not original sin. That was just Eve being Eve. And you go, hey, 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 hey. and I go, hey, 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 hey. but I'm supposed to preach, 
And so let me improve you. It does not say through two men. It does not say through one man and one woman. It does not say through our first parents. It says through one man. Now, if you are inclined to think that this is the product of an ancient patriarchal time period, you know what I'm saying, um, that the reason this is recorded as one man is because Moses was, you know, Moses wrote in a time where he was a patriarch and Paul wrote in a time when patriarchs you know, the Potter familia of the ancient world, you know, he had power of life and death, you know, over his children, and, you know, he could expose his children if he didn't want a daughter. And so this is the kind of climate they were writing in, and, you know, of course, I mean, this is the sort of sexist kind of misogynist kind of, you know, stuff that you would expect from an ancient male, you know. Remember that the Bible is God's word. It is not the word of Paul, the Apostle Paul. This word, these, the Bible, these words are inspired by God. And so they have the authority of God. And so you best hit your head against this phrase, one man. And you best meditate on it. Because it really does apply to your life today. In, in so many ways, you can't even keep track of it. So the first thing you need to see is that it was not through Adam and Eve, even though Eve sinned first. It's not through Eve, and it's not through Adam and Eve, but it's through Adam that sin entered into the world, okay? And so, not just sin, but also death. Through this one man... Both sin and death came, all right? And so in the old New England primer, or primer, it says what? Well, it teaches the first letter of the alphabet by saying in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And when you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, you read, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all would be made alive. And so here it's one man, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's Adam. One man, Adam. So this is a double dip. It's twice in the New Testament. It's in the book of Genesis. It's very clear. The reason that we are born corrupt The reason we're corrupt in the womb, the reason that David says, in sin my mother conceived me, from the moment of conception, we bear the curse of the fall, and we are corrupt with original sin, and we are damned from the moment of our conception. This is the teaching of Scripture. This is not a sectarian doctrine. This is a doctrine that's been universally affirmed by the church from the time of Christ. This is a doctrine that Roman Catholics and Protestants agree on. Original sin is the very beginning of your condition before God. 
when you come from the womb, you are corrupt and damned. And you're not just damned to death, you're damned to God's eternal judgment because God will not tolerate sin. If we as Christians don't begin by teaching and preaching and sharing, you think, oh no, not sharing this. I mean, we share positive things. This is a positive thing. Now, I know that's a bit of a stretch, right? doesn't sound positive to talk about a little child who's just been conceived, being born under the judgment of God. I know that. But now, let me ask you a question. Every single one of us, how do you explain yourself without this? How do you explain yourself without this? How do you explain what a piece of work you are? Your wife points it out all the time. Your husband points it out. Your friends point it out. You don't need it pointed out because you know it yourself. You are a piece of work. What you know to do, you don't do. The things you know that you should do, you don't do. The things you know you shouldn't do, you do. You're just like Augustine. He sees the pear tree. It's on a neighbor's land. And he doesn't want pears, but he and his friends go over and they pick the pears. Why? Because it's forbidden. And because all of us want to do. Because the law multiplies sin. You wouldn't go 65 through the mountains of Pennsylvania, except it says 55. It feels uncomfortable to go 65 through those hills of Pennsylvania. But it says 55. And so guess who goes 65? Not just me, my wife. (laughs) Inside of us, is rebellion that is incomprehensible. Except when we read, justice through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. How do you understand yourself without this? How do you understand yourself? Your jealousy, your bitterness, your envy your unbelief, your lust, your fear. You're just coldness. There's no milk of human compassion in you. Your selfishness, your greed, your vanity, especially George. You just think of how much time it takes him to comb his hair every morning. All the complicated instructions he gives the barber. Now, this is a joke if you don't know George. I tried to single out the one man in our church that isn't vain at all, you know. George doesn't even know he has a body except when it comes to eating, you know, (laughs) and working. He works like a dog. How old are you? 87. 87. 
and he's clearing his forest. How do you explain how, how prissy we are as men and how pushy and brash we are as women? One of my all-time favorite quotes of my life is found in Pascal, who is the French mathematician and philosopher. He wrote the Pensées, and he says this. He says, For it is beyond doubt that there is nothing that more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first Adam has rendered guilty those who being so far removed from this source, from Adam, so far removed from Adam, they seem incapable of participation in it. He says this transmission, death through sin, this transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it also seems very unjust, not fair. For what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice, our miserable fairness, what we think, what seems more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will? For a sin wherein he seems to have so little a share that it was committed 6,000 years before he was in existence. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And then he says this, he says, and yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. We don't begin to understand ourselves until we read the Bible saying, through one man's sin enter into the world, and we go, okay, that's why I am who I am, and that's why I fear death. And that's why I don't want to see God, because he's holy, and I'm not. This is us. This is us. Now, is this a comfort to you? Is this a comfort to you? Is this a comfort to you about yourself? You know, a proper diagnosis should be a comfort to us. You know something's wrong. You go to the doctor and he says, well, you have a a football-sized tumor in your abdomen. Oh, that's what it is. I'm not crazy. Well, this is what it's telling us. We've got We've got an an infinitely large tumor at the center of our will, and that tumor is called original sin. And it's putting pressure on us at every point it can. It's motivated and and, and energized by Satan himself, who's roaring, lying, prowling, seeking whom he may devour. And it gives issue in us not just manifesting Adam's sin, but you and I really sin. So you've got original sin, which we get from Adam. Then you've got actual sin that we do ourselves. And so the minute the baby comes out of that womb, uh, it's not difficult at all to attribute moral agency to a baby. 
You know, the mother might take a little while to attribute it, but the dad is immediately offended because he's been relegated. He sees the selfishness of that little one. That little one now has more love than he has from his wife. Right? All of us as men have gone through this, right? Being relegated by a baby. Well, not all of us, but all of us who are fathers. And Pascal says, nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. You know, you look at the world, and the one thing that's clear in the world is that the world doesn't have a clue of understanding itself. You look at those who don't know Jesus Christ, and they spend their lives trying to deny who they are and what they are. They're desperate to deny that they ever fail, they ever make mistakes, they ever sin, they ever lie. The world is, is, is just ridiculously intense upon denying what is as obvious to Christians as the nose on the end of our face. We see sin constantly in ourselves, other people. It's so obvious. It's not mistakes. It's not well-meant failures. It's sin. We see it. We see it in ourselves. We see it in other people. But the world is in unbelievable denial. You know, it's ain't sin. Ain't sin. That's all homosexualism is. Ain't sin. Ain't sin. You know? And we all have our pet sins that we deny our sin, and then we try to trample on any shame connected with it. God has been pleased from the very first sin to associate shame with sin. But the world is just adamant. You're not going to shame me. I'm not going to shame myself. And it's just so, so shameful that you just want to turn away from it. You know, it's like, <laughs> yikes. You know, the whole world is the emperor with no clothes. And Christians see it. But the world just goes on and on about the clothes it's wearing. It's threads, you know. Pimps it all out, you know makes the things that are ugly and shameful into beauty, you know, just like the emperor. But he has no clothes. The world is under God's judgment because the world has inherited the sin of the first man, Adam. And the minute you see this, the world becomes what? What does Pascal say? You and the world become comprehensible to you, Right? Mary Lee and I, when we were first married, we loved going to the zoo in Madison. And when we were at the zoo, we would take Heather, she'd be in the stroller, and we'd sit in front of the little, I don't know names of different monkeys, but it was the little monkeys. And there was a whole colony of them in this cage. And I want to tell you, it was like like an entire city with the moms, the dads, the children, and, and the children were like us as children, the dads were like us as dads, The mothers were like us as mothers, you know. It was just like fascinating. It was better than any movie, you know. The jealousies, the pettiness, the the aggression, the the deceptions, the the tenderness, the, you know, the the benevolent uh, mutuality of of, of nitpicking each other, you know. You know, they'd take, you know, they'd sit and pick the nits out of each other, whatever they are, I don't know, lice or crap, I don't know. Now, 
That's one part of this text. And that's the part that's not offensive to us. That's the part that we all agree on because we're all Christians. Because it makes no sense to plead with Jesus to be our second head unless we accept the fact that Adam's our head and we must have salvation. And we can't get it except through the second Adam. So anybody here who's Christian is completely in agreement with what I just preached because we know we must have Jesus, and Jesus is the second Adam who did right everything Adam did wrong. We're going to get to that. That's the next section. But there's something else I want to, I want to say to you. What is the name of the race? Adam. What is it translated into English? Man. What does God call the whole race, men and women, together? Calls them what? Adam. What do you call the race? Well, all of you call it humanity and human beings. All of you. There's not one person here who doesn't do that. And most of you do that all the time. Because I listen to you. So let me ask you again, what did God call the race? Adam. What is Adam translated into English in the King James? Man. What is the name for the race all through the Old Testament? It's Adam, all through the Old Testament. What is it in the New Testament? Anthropos. One man, anthropos, that's the, word, the Greek word. What is that? That is a male mark. There is a male meaning component. Any linguists here? You know what I'm talking about. There is a meaning component that's male in the word man. Can we all accept this? And so why don't we call the race man? That's what God named it. Well, you know why we don't. <laughs> because we're all, in my first sermon, I was thinking about this, and I had the image of, what is it, uh, what's the name of that town where they run in front of the bulls? What's it called? Huh? If somebody's going to say it, say it loudly. Huh? Pamplona. Okay, you know where all the men prove their masculinity by getting in this narrow little street and the bulls are let loose and they all have to run to stay ahead of them and every year somebody gets gored, you know? You see pictures of guys, the bull's almost on them, you know? The horn's coming after him, he's going to get gored and he's jumping through a window, you know, trying to escape. Well, this is what we're, we're all doing. We're all running in front of the bulls of our culture who refuses to have any male meaning component in a word that is used for men and women. And so we all just change our language because we don't want to confess our faith. We don't want to use the name that God used. We're embarrassed of God. We're ashamed of God. Now, come on. What is the, what's the meaning of saying you will take up your cross and follow Jesus if you won't use the word for the race that God uses? Is that the one cross you're, you're going to avoid? Just one? God, give me one, just one cross. Right? Okay, 
we'll give you that cross. You, you don't have to carry that cross. Just say humanity. Just say persons. Okay, okay, you got it. So what other crosses are you going to avoid? Huh? Do you think words don't matter? Do you think it doesn't matter what word God calls us? In the New Testament, all through the epistles, the entire church, men and women together, they're called brothers. Adelphoi is the Greek word. Well, let's leave that one off. Okay, so we've refused to take up the cross of Adam in Hebrew, and we call them human beings, humanity. See, it's got the word man in it. Except that the origin of human is, is not man, but humus, soil. Those of you that have studied Latin, you know this. And so you're not confessing the faith when you say humanity because you're just saying soil in Latin. Or soily, or of the soil. And so now you come to the church in the New Testament, and it's Adelphoi, and you say, forget that. I'm not calling the church brothers. That's so gnarly. That's like from the ancient world. You know, I'm not going to do that because my friends would think I'm weird. Okay, forget that cross. Forget this cross. But you're going to be the head of your home, right? And you're going to submit to your wife, right? Right? It's really sweet how you can refuse to confess Christ with your mouth and yet confess him with your actions. I've seen this all my life where I shut my mouth and refuse to confess my faith, it's so sweet how I do it with my actions. Because words don't really have any weight, but actions have weight. Listen, we live in a day that hates the federal headship of Adam. We are individuals. We refuse to admit that God has dealt with us as a race because of one man. When God came to Adam and Eve after they sinned in the Garden of Eden, God said, have you, and it's singular. And he directs it to Adam, and Adam responds, in behalf of Eve. And when God curses Adam, he says what? Because you listen to the voice of your wife. The meaning of manhood and womanhood is is unbelievably clear in the first three chapters of the Bible. It could not be more clear. In Adam, we all die. But Eve sinned first. And what I get a kick out of is feminism purportedly is all about the dignity of women. But have you noticed how the feminists never give moral agency to women? It's like they testify to the truth of the federal headship of Adam even as they deny it. Because there's no woman that's ever guilty of actually wanting to be in a movie and take her clothes off, and so she does it with the director in the hotel room before she does it on the movie. Weinstein? I mean, come on. These women are not moral agents, and we're supposed to all feel that these poor women... And somehow, the Me Too movement never finds a woman who's sinned. And somehow with abortion, it's never the woman who murders her unborn child or hires an assassin to do it, but it's always the men, you know, 
the, the abortionist and, and the father who won't let his daughter, and it's the boyfriend that won't, you know. And so why is this the way that we handle sin? Why is it that feminism denies the moral agency of women? The reason is in Adam, we all died. Feminism can't help itself. I get such a kick out of lesbian couples. Why? There's always a man. And don't you dare sit there and think that Tim Bailey's saying this because Tim Bailey's so proud of who he is and who his wife is and that he's a man and his wife's a woman. You wouldn't believe how hard it is for me to be a man. And you wouldn't believe how hard it is for Mary Lee to be a woman. Only God's command makes us men and women. Don't you personalize this. That's, 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 that's this generation. This generation is always thinking of the ulterior motives of the speaker. I'm preaching God's word. God named us man. Why do you not use the word? Come on. Why do you not use the word? You won't write it. You won't say it. And you say, well, it's because I'm trying to live in the world in an understanding way as with the weaker vessel, you know. Does that what the world needs is more people that flatter it? More people that are afraid of it? Is, does the world need more people who are afraid of man instead of God? No. What the world needs is for you to begin to speak biblically. And so when you're talking to people at work or when you're writing a paper, you use the word man as God used it and named it, which is inclusive of male and female. You say, man is sinful. And the feminist says, you right? And you say, no, 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 I'm including women in that. No, you wrote man. Yeah, that's the inclusive of male and female, man. Because, and she says, well, that's a, that's a usage that we've given up a long time ago as being patriarchal. And you say, oh, not me, I'm a Christian. And she says, you're a what? You say, I'm a Christian. And so my language is marked with scripture because that's God's words. And she says, well, I, I have, some of my best friends are Christians. And I've never heard any of them talk the way you're talking. And you say, well... I'm not here to talk the way they talk. I'm here to, to talk the way God talks. And she says, where does God say that? And then you have an opportunity to open up the Bible. Unbelievably smelly. The smell of life to those who are being saved. Unbelievably helpful. Unbelievably faithful. And I'm going to end with this. We live in a day that hates authority so much, so intensely, that we are actually today learning things about sexuality and authority that previous generations were oblivious to. Now, does that sound crazy? How could we know some things better than past generations? It seems impossible because we're such a pathetically weak day in the church, right? Okay, so here's one thing that you know better than Christians that came before you. Are you ready? Listen to this. Now, those of you who are Dutch 
have heard of something called the Heidelberg Catechism. Any of you heard of the Heidelberg Catechism? Okay, a lot of you have heard about that. Let me read this, question 10 from the Heidelberg Catechism. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? Answer, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents. Plural. Adam and Eve. All right, now I direct your attention to the Bible. It says through one man. Heidelberg says our first parents, Adam and Eve. So who's right? When Heather was a little girl, I looked at her and I said, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? And she looked at me, she looked at her mother, and she said, that's a bad question. Okay, so who's right, the Heidelberg Catechism or Scripture? Scripture's right. This is something we understand better than the Continental Reformed men who wrote the Heidelberg Catechism. Isn't that amazing? It never occurred to them that anybody would deny Adam's federal headship. And so sort of noblesse they include Eve, they say our first parents, and then we come today when everybody denies the most basic foundational things about manhood and womanhood. We say, no, the Bible says one man. The Bible says Adam, in Adam we all died. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but, you know, that's the Continental Reform people. That's the Dutch, and, and the Dutch aren't much, you know? And, 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 and we're, we're English. We're Irish. We're, we're from Scotland, you know? And so we're smarter. And so the Westminster Confession and the Catechisms would not say such a thing. So here's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6 of the Fall of Man. And here's what it says. The first words... Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, and then plural, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. And then section three, they, again plural, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed. Do you know that in these few verses, five different times it says one? Five times in the coming couple of verses it says one. God is pleased to deal with us corporately. And God deals with us corporately through our first father, who is Adam, not Eve. This is not demeaning to woman. And so what I plead with you to do is to love this truth. It explains you to yourself. And I plead with you to live by it. Man is named for the ground. Woman is named for man. Woman is named by man. The name... indicates derivation, origin. And so if we're Christians, we are especially stubborn at the places where the world demands that we deny our faith. This is what the early church always did. Just little things. Just call Caesar 
Lord. Just deny the lordship of Jesus. It's very little thing. It's just words, you know. Just say it, and then you won't die. And this is what the world is doing to us today. And honestly, is there anything that you can do better than die for Jesus? Think of what he did for you. Do you know what Jesus said? And this is really the end. Jesus said this. Jesus said, If you are ashamed of me, when the Son of Man comes in all his glory, he's going to be ashamed of you before his Father. And so are you ashamed of Jesus? But you know that I just misquoted it. I just misquoted scripture. What was my misquote? That's not what it says. (laughs) You know what it is? You're a preacher. Come on. What What did I just misquote? Huh? Anybody know? No, that's not it. What do I? That's right. Welcome. We're happy to have you, Jacob. What I left out was if you are ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you. I don't use the word man all the time. I don't go out of my way to be obnoxious, but I do go out of my way to be faithful. And so I do regularly use the word man in a gender-inclusive way. And I hope people will ask me about it, and I plead with you to do the same. Because you wouldn't believe how much you can open up when people ask you why you're using a male-marked term with a a male semantic meaning component to refer to men and women. I once had the privilege of addressing a linguistics class on sexism and language. And I got to open up the doctrine of original sin and showing them how the use of the male inclusive for men and women, how this all through scripture leads us to the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And afterwards, there was a wonderful discussion with a woman who was furious at the end of the class that immediately went into what? It went into sin, her sin that she couldn't bear her sin. It's such a short path from saying man (laughs) to the gospel. It's unbelievably evangelistic. I know it doesn't seem like it is. But it is. You all with me? So try it. Try it. Take one little step and use the word man inclusively in some unsafe place this week. Okay? And just see what God does with you. Father, we pray that you will give us faith for the words of your word. And Father, we pray that you will lead us to the second Adam. That we will take our sin and place it under our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.